If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Coming up on this week's show, the Atari 400 gets the mini treatment. Konami announced some big re-releases. And we go inside the world of obscure consoles and computers with Lewis Packwood. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you absolutely need to check out, Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom, a visual compendium. Now, this pays homage to one of the greatest consoles ever made and its incredible library of games and the people who brought these amazing ideas to life. So if you're a fan of Nintendo's 16-bit wonder, check that book out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, you know PCBWay. They offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping, low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know that PCBWay are huge supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now on their website at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 412, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And very nice to have you joining us for another episode where we get to geek out for an hour-ish, actually around 90 minutes normally, but you know, that doesn't sound as catchy for a podcast title, uh, where we talk about classic video games, technology, bring you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days, and of course, bring you an incredible guest in the second half of the show as well. And we just love doing this podcast. I mean, that's the thing about us guys. I mean, for people that might be new to the show, you know, we never claim to be like experts on this kind of thing, do we? All we are is guys that love video games who are like hanging out and talking about it. Yeah, and we've done it for quite a long time now. Yeah. Over eight years of doing this podcast every single week. So if you have just found us recently, because um, I don't want to you know, blow our own trumpet or anything, but you've been sharing a few uh, stats with us recently, Ravi. We've kind of hit 2024 uh, running, really, haven't we, in terms of you know the podcast charts and the stats and all that recently? Yeah, it's been it's been really good, and uh, you know, thanks so much for everybody listening. It's uh, great. I think we're number seven in the uh, iTunes charts, which yeah. was uh, pretty amazing to see. And Dan, you've also been um, betraying us and <laughs> <laughs> going on to other services. Yes, I mean, I have been doing a bit of moonlighting um, over the last couple of weeks. I kind of forgot about this because it was something I recorded um, at the start of December, um, day after my birthday, actually, which might explain why my, my voice is slightly croaky on this episode if you listen to it. Uh, but this was a, um, a documentary um, that I was invited to take part in that was on the BBC. Now, this was broadcast on um, BBC Radio 4 which is a you know terrestrial radio station here in the UK for people outside the UK, and also released on a podcast on BBC Sounds as well. And it's a series that they do called Toast. Now, it's quite an interesting concept for a show. It's about basically companies that, you know, were like riding high and then suddenly everything went wrong and, you know, they, they got toasted, essentially. So they've done episodes on, like, you know, Blockbuster was a recent episode they did on there as well. They've done one on their Toys R Us. And they have um, a journalist on there called Sean. And um, basically, his, uh, his serial entrepreneur 
co-host, Sam White, her name is, they sum up kind of why these companies failed. And, um, you know, if we're talking about computer companies, obviously the one I was invited on to talk about was the Commodore episode. I they think did it's, uh, it's, it's always something that people discuss eternally, yeah. which is why did this company fail and what would have happened if this changed? And uh, I find this quite interesting because, you know, going on to the BBC and stuff, our audience have probably heard that story a million times. Yeah. But, you know, going out there for the for the mainstream thing is is really cool. Yeah, and it was. It was awesome. You know, there's a guy called Tim who's the editor of their PC Pro magazine. He was on it as well. David Pleasance, you know, who um, our good friend who used to be the former managing director of Commodore. And Amiga's basically just like, you know, an Amiga and Commodore super fan, really. So I'll play a little, uh, couple of seconds of it if you want to hear kind of how the, uh, the episode sounds. Dan, from a gaming perspective, Dan Wood, who's a super fan, what came next from your perspective after the Commodore 64? Well, we were, uh, you know, a Commodore household, really. You know, after we um, you know, got the initial 8-bit machines in the 80s, we moved on to the the Amiga, which was um, Commodore's flagship brand in the late 80s and through to their demise in the mid-90s. So, yeah, I got an Amiga 500 Plus model for Christmas 1991. It didn't feel like jumping one generation. It felt like a computer from the future. When the Amiga was launched, you know, the Mac was still black and white. You know, the PC was basically just beeping at the DOS prompt, and then the Amiga came along, 4,096 colours. It had, you know, stereo sound as well. I remember a friend of mine who had an Amstrad computer coming to my house and experiencing the music on Amiga games, and his jaw dropped. And he went home and asked his mum that night, I need an Amiga 500. Stories that I've told before on this podcast, but like you said, Ravi, the fact that I could talk about that kind of stuff on BBC Radio 4, still a yeah, bit surreal. And, and you've got your phone voice on as well, I can tell. <laughs> like I said, trying not to sound too hungover after my birthday night out night before. Um, but yeah, so if you want to check that out, I mean, it was like an hour long that we recorded and they edited the whole thing down to around 24 minutes. So, you know, there's kind of a lot on the cutting room floor. But I think, you know, still the fact that the mainstream that the BBC are covering this kind of thing now. I do think it's very cool. So. Yeah, it's cool. I saw they did one on the Spectrum as well. Uh, yeah. Not the Spectrum, on the uh, Sinclair C5. Which, yes, uh, they did, yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting series, actually. So if you want to check that out, it's on our BBC Sounds now, or you can, I think they're still repeating it on Radio 4 at certain points as well, but I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, we have got lots of stories to get into this week, and uh, we're going to be talking about obscure systems in the second half of the podcast today. Now, you guys know that, you know, I'm a bit of a fan of the kind of the failed and weird systems, you know, you know that I collect for the Atari Jaguar, you know, that I've got a, a Philips C- CDI and a Commodore CDTV, but those systems are, uh, quite frankly, mainstream <laughs> compared to the systems we're going to be talking about with our guest this week, Lewis Packwood. Now, we've had Lewis on the podcast before, and um, he's done some incredible books and documentaries in the past. We'll still talking to Lewis don't we yeah I I really love this book that he's kind of created and this is a you know curious video game machines and honestly I have not heard of half of these (laughs) machines in there there's a there's a few things that we've talked about before but uh my god he's gone into detail with stuff well I'm going to test Joe on these before we uh, get into it have you heard of the um Interton video computer 4000 have you heard of that before I'm on one right now yeah, looking at, looking at your uh, vast collection of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sat on a throne of Interton. Of course what you are. Call, what are they called, Interton? <laughs> I think VC it might be. Um, this wow. is basically a computer that came out of console, actually, an early 8-bit ROM-based, cartridge-based, second-generation video home game console, um, mainly popular in Germany. It also was released okay. here as well, apparently. Never heard of it before. France, Spain, Austria, the Netherlands, Australia in 1978. Apparently the company that were behind it they were a hearing aid manufacturer. 
who oh, branched wow. out into video games. So uh, we talk about that. What about the uh, the MB Microvision? One of those in your collection? Is in the board games MB Mega Boring. MB, yeah, that's them. <laughs> Not badly. <laughs> Well, this was no. the first handheld game console that used interchangeable cartridges, and it was a handheld a decade before the Game Boy. Well, you oh, know, wow. these aren't that obscure because we've actually got a story about the uh, Casio Loopy later yes. on in the news, <laughs> which is featured in the book. And um, you well, know, one, Lewis... more, one more for Joe. Let me give you one more. What about the Galaxia? You heard of that before? The Galaxia. Yeah. Is that a limited a... edition chocolate bar? <laughs> now I'm craving one of those. Uh, no, this was a uh, a build-it-yourself computer. And basically okay. it was like, you know, you know, today people build their own kind of cases for Raspberry Pis yeah. and that kind of thing. This was basically a main board. You'd build your own case for it back in the day. The ultimate hobbyist machine, an open source computer from Yugoslavia. So, oh, wow. I mean, okay. there's all this stuff out there that like, you know, you th- we think we've heard a lot about retro gaming and tech. Turns out there's so much more that I need to look out mm-hmm. for on eBay now. Yeah, yeah, loads. I, I used to have this idea of like, I'm going to get every console that ever came out in the UK. And like, you think like, you know, oh, there can't be that many, Sega, <laughs> Nintendo. And then you just hear about all these crazy things in the 70s and 80s. And like you say, every single like electronics company, whether it was hearing aids or, you know, CD Hi-Fi, you know, Sony yeah. or whatever, you know, dipping their toes. Obviously, That Sony one worked out all right. Yeah, that one worked <laughs> all right. But just dipping their toes in it and just, you know, the things that came out. And like you say, I did know there was in things before the Game Boy, but I couldn't mm. tell you what they were, you know, yeah, ones, uh, cards and stuff like that. It's, it's like different generations have different mm. references to that stuff. sounds really you're, interesting. You're a bit younger than us, Joe, as well. So you have a, a, a different base than... Uh, us guys and you know i think lewis as well he's he's a he's a writer a journalist so um you know he's wrote stuff for the guardian uh, edge magazine as well retro gamer uh, time extension so you know he's he's got a, a big bit of knowledge and kind of skills at research got the credentials yeah, yeah definitely absolutely and i think you know i'm listening uh, i would pay attention to this week's podcast guys because i'm thinking a load of new questions for the christmas quiz might come out of this oh, episode God, here we so, go. Well, you know, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really interesting chat if you want to hear about the more obscure side of video game machines and computers with our guest lewis packwood he's on the show in around 35 minutes from now now something that isn't obscure to most of the world but actually we were chatting before we started recording this episode today um none of us have ever owned one of these machines and actually we haven't really got all that much experience in using them but this has been the big headline in the world of retro from over the last week um you know it's been all over YouTube it's been all over my social timelines that the next mini console or a mini computer in this case actually from Retro Games Limited of course who were the company that brought us the uh, Amiga 500 mini last year the C64 and Vic 20 minis they've now announced that in a couple of months time we're going to be getting a mini version of the Atari 400 yeah i, I think this is a, a really wise move actually because the Atari 400, I've not actually ever seen one in person in the UK. Um, when I was in America, there were a lot of them about. And, you know, it's it's the Atari 8-bit system as well. Yeah. And I think this is really cool because they'll obviously hit that nostalgia of the American market, but then the curiosity of other markets and other regions that didn't have it. Yeah, 100%. And uh, like you said, I mean, it was definitely a system that was more popular in the USA, it was one of the you know the first home computers released by Atari back in 1979. Um, obviously, you think about then you know the, the contemporaries to it were stuff like the Commodore PET and the Apple II and the uh, the TRS-80 as well. It's got that membrane keyboard on there. You've got the cartridge slot on the top, and um, 
it wasn't that popular in the UK. You're right. I mean, I've looked at some kind of estimates on their sales. They reckon that they only sold 50,000 units of the Atari 400 and the 800, which was a version with more memory, um, combined in the UK. So definitely not a machine that we've it's, seen much of over it's here. It's something that we've had many guests reference as yeah. well as one of their first machines. Um, and it looks like it's got a great history about it, but also, you know, uh, Retro Games Limited, the company behind it, have uh, created a, a quite a nice piece here and uh, they've got some good options in there too i mean when you guys uh <laughs> sent me this last week when it was announced i ain't gonna lie because it just said it, you know it was the the a what does it say the a 400 mini the 400 mini the 400 mini i thought it was an amiga <laughs> yeah <laughs> was the one with the model number lower than the amiga 500 <laughs> yeah so um that confused me a little bit um i i'd never heard well i probably have heard the atari 400 but you know what I'm like with anything that's kind of like pre my era. I'm I'm terrible mm. with it, but this looks pretty cool. So I'm assuming the games are kind of on par with the Atari 2600. You know, yeah. In- well, I mean, in terms, of, I mean, there were some games that came out in the UK in particular. I mean, you know, Jet Set Willie was um, ported to it as well. You know, Jeff Minty used to do quite a bit on there. I think mm-hmm. Matthew Smith did some stuff. Andrew Braybrook obviously featured in our uh, our retro book recently. He made a couple of titles for it as well. The interesting thing about the Atari 400 to me is that really, I mean, you you thought then, you know, it wasn't an Amiga. This really is the kind of spiritual kind of grandfather or the father of the Amiga, really, because it was made okay. by Jay Miner, who was, you know, he worked for Atari at the time and then went on to be, you know, one of the, the principal designers of the Amiga. Um, and this was kind of, you know, it's got a lot of the principles in there that kind of went on to the Amiga afterwards, like, you know, custom chips, you know, for example, that are in this machine. And really a lot of people think, because obviously Commodore released the, the Commodore 64, a lot of people kind of think of like, you know, the, the 64 as like the predecessor to the Amiga, but really it was the Atari 400 and 800. So from that perspective kind of being the Amiga's ancestor. To me, I've always found that machine interesting from that point of view and wanted to explore it a bit more. Yeah, and some of the games as well, like, um, you know, they, they mentioned that it's going to come with 25 pre-installed ones. Yeah. Uh, Berserk Millipede as well, Minor 2049er as well, which is a, a reference quite a lot. Uh, Star Raiders, uh, Mule as well. So uh, they've got some kind of groundbreaking games here. I think what's quite nice is they outright advertise you know, in the trailer for it, that it is compatible with emulation of the 400 and 800 XL and also the yeah. Atari 5200 home console. Yeah, because I mean, we, we were saying when we did that episode with, um, you know, Ben Jones from Play On the other week, you know, Ravi asked him about, you know, could you do Atari 5200 emulation on the uh, the 2600 Plus? And he was a bit kind of cagey. He was a bit like, oh, you know, maybe we could do that kind of thing. But obviously this was kind of going on behind the scenes, mm. which I imagine mm. you knew about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, no doubt. But it, my point was it's nice to... Act- we know, like, they must know, like, when they did the PlayStation Mini, like, mm. a load of my mates, you know, modded theirs and all that, which was really easy to do, and just put, like, hundreds of PlayStation 1 games on there, and, you know, you see the Super Nintendo Mini with loads of other games on there and stuff, and it's like, these companies must know that people do this, and it is actually quite easy to do it, so it's yeah. nice to see that they're just like, yeah, you can emulate other games on it, <laughs> which is great. Also, this was kind of announced earlier wasn't it that there were going to be some releases from uh, retro games limited and we were kind of speculating and everybody was wondering what they were and it looks like they're kind of going in in the atari direction which is interesting because uh you know previously they've released commodore stuff and uh, amiga and i think you know the point you made there joe about the fact that they kind of encourage you know people to kind of you know put your own ROMs on there, all that kind of thing Mm. so i don't know if you've seen um the a500 mini recently there's this thing called pandori on there 
um, which basically completely opens the system. People are running like PlayStation games, Dreamcast games on them now. Oh, wow. Which is okay. like, basically turns it into a great little emulation mm. box, you know, completely breaking out of that, you know, just the Amiga built-in emulation and they haven't blocked it or anything like that as far as I've seen. So, you know, it does seem like they're maybe, you know, not maybe not encouraging it, but letting people do what they want with them. Um, but in terms of the look of this, I mean, obviously you've got that kind of distinctive Atari 400 look, um, which I've always thought, you know, is it a chunky little looking machine, isn't it? The, the Atari 400. I've seen them at like Play Expo before and um, Stephen Jones, when he's demoing his uh, that monitor that he kickstarted a couple of years ago, whenever I see him at events recently, he's always got an Atari 400 plugged into it to kind of demonstrate how that looks on there. So you get a, a smaller version. The same, this is a half-size version of the Atari 400. I imagine it doesn't say anything about it on the video or the um, the website as far as I can see, but I imagine the keyboard will be non-functional because it generally always is with these. I mean, Yeah, you know, the, yeah. but yeah. even, you know, I don't know if that would be cheap to produce uh, a working keyboard for that as well. And, you know, if they haven't got it functional, someone's going to rip it apart and make it functional, aren't they? <laughs> well, it, it says five USB ports which allow for addition of modern keyboard. So, yeah. yeah, so I would say that's not going to be working and you've got to plug your own one in. It's the size of it, isn't it? I mean, someone mm. there is a YouTube video, someone did mod the A500 Mini to have, nice. you know, working key. You kind of need a cocktail stick to press the keys down over <laughs> tiny. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I understand that for the reasons, you know, of size. It's not going to be a comfortable machine to type on. Not that those kind of chiclet keys were in the first place anyway. Um, so that's kind of to be expected now as well. It also comes with a recreation of the Atari CX40 joystick as well. Now, this is interesting because I did kind of mention a moment ago about, you know, the interview we did with Ben Jones from PlayOn, who um, who worked on the Atari 2600+. Plus. Apparently, from what I've read, this is in collaboration with PlayOn. So I'm wondering if the joystick that comes with this is the same one that came with the 2600 plus. So I was surprised. Yeah, yeah, they do look really similar, don't they? So it would make sense rather than trying mm. to, you know, do it yeah. twice. I suppose if they're just going to use the same joystick, which you know I've got no complaints. I thought that joystick was really nice. A great little feature in here. I mean, obviously you can sideload your own games on by USB stick. It supports cartridge disc and cassette ROMs as well. It's got a rewind function. And you can save games as well. This rewind function I thought was quite cool. So basically what you can do is you can resume your game at any time, save your game at any time, or you can rewind by up to 30 seconds to help you get past those really difficult parts, which were often the case in 8-bit games. Yeah, I've played a few, you know, uh, kind of limited run games and games that have been, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, they did The Lion King and Aladdin and Jungle Book all on Xbox and PlayStation, and they all had yeah. like the rewind uh, features in them and you, you go I'm going to play this I'm going to play it properly I'm not going to rewind or anything and then you know I, th I think I played a guy nuke for the Mega Drive the other week on Xbox and yeah I'm just rewinding every time I die yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing I mean it, to me it's like having these conveniences in there you know if some people are like purists and like well I wasn't in the original if that was in the original systems back in the day you know we would have used them Rather than starting the game them. all over again. You, you yeah. need it to complete a game, Dan. <laughs> I, I needed to get to the second level of most games. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's definitely a welcome addition. And again, you don't have to use it if you don't want it. You know, it's just a feature that's in there if, if you if you wish to use it. Um, and also, I mean, they've, they've paid a lot of attention to it as well. They said, you know, from the, the hard-to-match colours of the original machine, the authentic textures of the plastic as well, they've really kind of tried to make it, you know, uh, a tribute to the original Atari 400, which I think is really nice. And I think they did a good job with the um, the A500 Mini in terms of, the, you know, the plastic colour and the feel of it as well. So I've got every faith that this will be um, 
equally as good as that. So, and I think it's very interesting to see as well. Like you said, Ravi, it's. Uh, I've had a lot of people kind of message me going, "Well, I didn't see that one coming." You know, that's a bit left to centre because I think a lot of people were expecting maybe uh, another Commodore machine. Maybe you know, there's rumours of a CD32 Mini. You know, some people were talking about last yeah, year. Yeah, I, I, I think you know that, that may be a little bit too obscure. But yeah. uh, as you know, my predictions aren't amazing on this kind of thing. <laughs> but you know, one thing that stands out to me is Atari is absolutely killing it. They're yeah. pumping out so much stuff at the moment and a lot of stuff based on their legacy and you know licensing out uh different companies but also like choosing the right ones as well that are uh, producing quality stuff you know there was a lot of um uh older atari let's say tat machines that came out mm. in the past and uh you know that these ones look pretty decent yeah and i'm very excited about this as someone who you know i've got pretty much all the mainstream kind of you know 8-bit micros in my collection, I'd say now, but the uh, the Atari 400 is one that I've always really wanted, but never got hold of. So I think for me, this will definitely be, you know, a, a must-have machine. So it's available from uh, the 28th of March, so only a few months to wait, and uh, pre-orders for that are available now. Um, I haven't checked the prices yet. Let me just quickly check on the uh, UK prices. 99 this is pounds, available. 99 pounds. That's not bad, actually, is it? Yeah, I think mm. that's really reasonable. So um, nice-looking box as well. So if you want to check that Amazon link and uh, the trailer for that, I'll put that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, some uh, rather exciting news from... Konami this week as well, who have announced some uh, classic re-releases. Oh yeah, baby, this is up my street. <laughs> so it is. Um, our uh, our friends at a uh, limited run and uh, Konami, interestingly, who you know aren't really making any new games at the moment and releasing old games. So you know this doesn't this hasn't come out of the blue or anything like that. Uh, no pun intended. But they have announced this week uh, via limited run and Konami. Um, two games actually, so two collections. So we'll go through the first one first, which I absolutely love. This is one of my favourite Mega Drive games of all time, to a point where I actually have a tattoo of him on my shin. Uh, Rocket Knight Adventures Resparks Collection, which I am super excited about. Do you guys know the Rocket Knight games? Familiar? Not with at them? all. Not <laughs> I at haven't. All. Pla- I, I remember you showing me your tattoo, and I was like, "Oh, can I have heard of that game? I vaguely oh, remember it, but it's not a game that I've played." Oh, I, I feel like I should have played it though, because we were talking before. We're going to do like a, an after hours episode for our patrons of kind of games that we probably should have played, but we haven't. We Is this a game you suggest people? This, should this play? will be a game I would suggest then. In that case, maybe for both of you. But yeah, Rocket Knight Adventures uh, was a 1993 action platformer where you played as a possum, funny enough. (laughs) Uh, I wonder inspired from that. (laughs) And he wears blue armour. But the the aim of the game is a platform adventure, you know, action platformer, kind of set in a steampunk uh, medieval kind of, you know, world where um, there's an evil pig army and they kidnap the princess and you as the possum have to rescue her. Um, and you know, you, you can, it's hard to describe, but it's a platformer game, you know, where you jump and you have a sword and you know, when you slash your sword, it kind of shoots a beam of energy across the screen. That's your attack. But if you hold down the jump button, you charge up your rocket, your jetpack, and you just jetpack all over the level. And it, it, it makes really unique and interesting kind of platforming, if that makes sense. And there's a whole load of different levels, levels where you have to get into giant pig mechs and fight, you know, other pig mechs and levels where you are it's a you know it's a shoot 'em up and you're flying along when you're jetpack you know shooting at people and stuff really really fun game i'm watching uh, a playthrough now on youtube the graphics look awesome on it, it as was well. absolutely fantastic beautiful game and it was followed by a sequel uh called sparkster rocket knight adventures 2 because you played as sparkster 
which came out in 94, which personally they changed the uh, kind of the controls a little bit too much and the uh, platforming a little bit too much for my liking, but it seems to be, it's qu- still quite a well-loved game. And then there was a Super Nintendo version spin-off, mm. which was just called Sparkster, which also came out in 1994. Um, was like a Wonder Dog, like a rip-off of this then? Or? I think <laughs> they're all just a rip-off of Sonic, let's be honest. <laughs> um, Looks but, quite similar, yeah. But yeah, Rocket Knight Adventure, um, often, you know, in kind of top 10 Mega Drive games, um, you know, for a lot of people. A lot of lists you'll see on YouTube and stuff. But the reason we're talking about it is Limited Run are going to be releasing this um, and it is going to go for pre-order on January 19th, which I believe is the day this episode airs. Yep, Friday, January 19th, um, which will be on for about a month um, because it's Limited Run and obviously, you know, uh, fear of missing out and all that jazz. And it's going to be $35 and it's going to be available. Yeah, it's not bad. You, You get all three games. It's going to be available on Switch and on PS4 and PS5. Uh, no news of it coming out on Xbox, but sometimes limited run, they kind of release the Xbox ones later. They don't always come on Xbox. And it does come with a limited edition mini comic as well, which was actually included in a issue of uh, Sega magazine back in the day, mm. uh, in the mid-90s or 93, I imagine, which is really cool. And obviously with it being limited run, there is you know plenty of other... Uh, things you can buy, you know, other ultimate editions, which you, know, you can spend a lot more money. I've seen on here if you yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah, hell of a <laughs> $134 lot. Hundred thirty four dollars for the uh, the ultimate edition. Yeah, which you know always come with like you know pins and stuff like that. But it does come with a really cool clamshell uh, case, which you know recreates the original Genesis Mega Drive uh, Sega box, uh, which I do love. But these things can get pricey, and they are going to be releasing. Uh, and it does you know warrant this it has got a fantastic soundtrack but they are going to be releasing the, the soundtracks on vinyl plushies everything they're, they're going to absolutely cassette. town on this yeah on cassette as well Honestly, yeah, no. uh, really going to town on this but as well as this uh, a month later now this is a game I'm not particularly uh, familiar with well I'm not oh, familiar man. with at when all I, when I saw this like from the recesses of my brain suddenly <laughs> <laughs> it re-emerged and I got all like nostalgic and ooh I yeah. vaguely remember this, watching the TV show of this, but Felix the Cat. Yeah, uh, so move, move over Mickey Mouse. Felix the <laughs> Cat was like uh, the original basic animal on cinema. You know, yeah. um, uh, it was from silent movies. 1919, apparently. Yeah, 1919, right, yeah, because yeah, I, I, I collect silent movies, which, uh, you know, on a Blu-ray and stuff like that. And uh, Felix the Cat was uh, really, really good stuff. That, you know, they did stuff with Charlie Chaplin as well. But then mm. I remember there was a series called The uh, it the Twisted Tales of yes. Felix the Cat. Yeah. And that was on TV when I, I was young. That, yeah. And, uh, you know, Felix the Cat has kind of disappeared from popular culture. And just seeing you know that character again i'm just like oh my god and yeah. realizing that there was a peak in the 90s and that they're kind of going back to you know the 93 uh, game boy titles and your yeah, mate yeah. apparently uh, voiced uh, uh, lani manella oh wow yeah <laughs> there voiced, you go cat apparently in, in, in the 2000s i've just seen so oh, oh wow yes funny that <laughs> but yeah they are going to be doing the felix the cat bundle uh with limited run once again on on uh, switch ps4 ps5 this is going to be releasing for pre-order february 9th to march 10th only two games of that one um as as ravi's just said it is a nes title uh which was called felix the cat and a game boy game which came out in 93 as ravi just said called felix the cat 
Um, not familiar with those two, but I'm I'm fairly certain I've seen people praising the, the NES game before the Nintendo game. Cats um, were big in the 90s. They like were. Garfield, Felix the <laughs> Cat, yeah. you know, they were all rocking it. <laughs> but yeah, um, as always, you know, limited limited run, absolutely killing it. They're definitely onto a good thing here. And using the carbon engine, which I've just, you know, been Googling before we kind of came on air. And uh, the carbon engine is the game engine that they use, which allows, you know, old games to be ported onto new systems. That's how they're mm. doing it. And it's something they created themselves, which I think is really cool. And as I was kind of Googling around, Konami have announced that next month on the 19th, oh, sorry, on the 24th of February, they are going to be announcing further re-releases through Limited Run using right. the Carbon Engine, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, these games, the games they pick out, I mean, I'm not familiar. I mean, I, I know the characters, but I haven't played you know, any of the Phyllis <laughs> Cat games or Rocket Knight Adventures. But I know, you know, for, for fans of the original games, having these classics updated for a modern hardware and having a physical edition of them. So now, I mean, I was watching a video the other day kind of laying into limited run games, if I'm honest. It was like an hour and a half documentary. Um, so I understand there are, you know, there's not everyone's a fan of this kind of thing. But I, my, my opinion always has been that, you know, if you don't like it, just don't buy it. So I think, you know, for people that do want this, I mean, you know, for stuff like this, which is, you know, mm. people have held close to the heart and the beloved mm. things from their childhood, being able to get them again in like a yeah. modern format, I think is, you know, as a collector... That's something really nice to have in your collection. Yeah. So, and I think the price of this as well. I mean, some of their releases can be very expensive, but like you know, thirty four dollars for you know a collection of this that you can run on your, on your Switch you've, and have you've, on your shelf. I think is decent. You've, you've completely hit the nail on the head there. Like, mm. I love the Rocket Knight game, so for me, that's a no brainer. It was one of my favorite games growing up. Yeah, and you've just said it there. Like, if you're not a fan of it, if you weren't a fan of that game, just don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to buy it. There's there's other people who will enjoy it. It's, it's not mandatory. It's not <laughs> mandatory. I'm I'm not a big fan. I, like I say, I, I can I have no real affiliation with Felix the Cat. That's cool. Doesn't upset me. Yeah, just don't buy it. So, just don't buy it. There we go. But yeah, really looking forward to uh, Rocket Knight Adventures Resparked. Yeah, so pre-orders go live today when the podcast comes out on Friday. So um, we'll link that up in our show notes as well if you do want to check it out. Now I do love the fact that I'm able to talk about the the Commodore Plus Four on this podcast recently, which, um, you know, a little recap for people that don't know. Uh, my first computer growing up, got a Commodore Plus 4, really wanted a Commodore 64, which obviously was like, you know, what all the cool kids had. Um, but the Plus 4, a big market failure. My mum kind of got one on a, a, a fire sale at Lasky's, I think it was, for like £99 with a load of games included. But I loved that machine growing up because it was my first computer. And there were some good games on there as well. But there was one game that I do, I've got a vivid memory of this, going to a little computer shop called Chips that was a little branch of like, I've got a feeling they're all around the country. Um, I, I think and, I remember Chips, yeah. Hmm. I mean, they were all over in kind of North Yorkshire and like Teesside and Darlington, that kind of area when I was a kid. And I remember going to the one in a red car or Redca, as I say up there, which is like a seaside resort um, not far from Middlesbrough. And there's one just up there on the seafront. And I've got a vivid memory, hot summer's day. My dad used to drive us there on a Saturday and um, we'd go and play in some of the, the arcades, you know, back in the late 80s, having fish and chips and then going into chips, different chips, to um, ask if they had any Commodore Plus 4 games, which was, I've told the story before, generally they'd always be a bit like, oh, hang on, we might have... Let me go check in the back and then, you know, come back 20 minutes later with like a dusty box. Uh, might have one or two games there as well. But actually the guy gave me a poster of OutRun because around that time, this must have been like 88, 89. They were kind of releasing 
the home ports of OutRun around that time. And I put that up on my bedroom wall above my Commodore Plus 4. And I look at the screenshots on there and I played the game in the arcade. And I remember kind of fantasizing how amazing it would be to be able to play OutRun at home. Because obviously the Plus 4 was a, a failed platform, was discontinued, I think, in 1985, you know, years before I got hold of mine and years before, you know, the OutRun home ports came out. But it actually turns out all these years later over what, like 35 years later, I can now finally play Outrun on my Commodore Plus 4. I could tell you're really proud of that. And I think I think, <laughs> I think it's really cool as well because um, uh, wasn't Stunt Car Racer one that we covered recently? Um, yeah, that, I think there that, was a port. That, that was ported, it? yeah. And that, that was a really impressive job. And looking at this, this, this looks great. Well, Mike Daly, um, who, you know, obviously we've had him on the podcast several times, of, of Lemmings Frame DMA Design, he tagged me on uh, on Twitter the other day saying, you might like this, Dan. I, I looked at this and my jaw dropped. So essentially this is a homebrew port of Turbo Outrun for the Commodore Plus 4, which obviously was, you know, nothing that we got commercially back in the day at all. Um, but I think this is, um, honestly, I, I couldn't believe this was running on the Plus 4 when I saw this video. Have you seen the screenshots and watched the video of this, Joe? Yeah, I, uh, I I had to check it out because of when you when you posted it in our group chat yesterday and said when I was a little boy and I used to look up at that poster and dream of being able to play it at home. Like that blonde thought, lady in the car. <laughs> I thought that was so sweet, and I thought, right, I'm gonna have to go check this out. And it it looks pretty good, to be honest. Mm. Like you know, like I say, I'm not familiar, you know, with the um the plus four, the Commodore plus floor, so I'm not. 100% sure you know of what its capabilities are and stuff like that so not very much <laughs> not very much as you say um but it it just to me like you know from the outside looking in it looks like a very nice 8-bit game especially you know the screenshot of America you know where you kind of get the what you know the route you're going to drive the kind of map as well the map yeah, yeah that I that looks wonderfully colorful you know the color palette on that looks fantastic and I'm going to go ahead and assume that the 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 plus four probably didn't have the greatest color palette for its actual well actually bizarrely it it had more colors than the commodore 64 oh okay yeah it, right. did. it had i think it was 121 colors i've got a feeling there's something like uh maybe eight shades of black or something were included in that oh, okay. so that's kind of a meme <laughs> that i see online sometimes but in terms of yeah the graphic the palette of it was actually a bit more advanced than the 64 um but in terms of what it could do i mean basically I've talked about this before, the Plus 4 was basically a CPU, a bit of RAM, and then one chip called the TED that basically mm. did like the I.O., it did the graphics, it did the audio as well. So, I mean, you know, even the audio of it, nothing in the same ballpark as the legendary SID chip on the 64. But actually, you can check out the um, the music that they've done on this as well. Sounds banging. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously it's nowhere near as good as a SID chip, but I think in terms of you've got to remember this, uh, it's a very, very limited sound chip. And it's also this chip is doing the I.O. and the graphics at the same time. And you've got this music playing over the game, which I think is an incredible achievement. I think it's pretty fabulous. That's grooving. I was dancing yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is a really nice little release. It's free on the website as well, yeah. um, which uh, plus four world. And also, <laughs> notice looking at the screenshots, I thought this is quite nice. They've got uh, the Cracker Group HCS on the intro. Oh, nice. So I think maybe they're kind of like having a bit of nostalgia of the old cracking group coming back, which is pretty cool. 
Well, um, TCFS is uh, the guy who's behind this uh, this new port of it as well. Um, there's Unreal. A guy called Unreal has done the graphics on this as well. Um, uh, I never know how to pronounce his name, but I will see it written down. Uh, C Sabo, you know, C C S A B O has done the soundtrack of this. Um, apologies for, if I pronounce your name wrong there. I always see his name written in forums and stuff as well. All 16 levels are in there. You've got the, you know, the special boost feature that allows you like a turbo boost and like speed up for a, a brief amount of time as well. Um, and actually the guys um, who did the Lemmings ports to, um, you know, the Lemmings version for the Commodore Plus 4 that we covered, they did Empire Strikes Back as well for the Plus 4 recently as well. They're the guys up behind this too. So I, I think can, the I, work that they're doing is just jaw-dropping. I could just imagine Dan, like, printing out this screen with the guy, you know, sat in his car with the uh, nice lady next to him and going to the hairdressers and being like, I want my hair like him. Yeah, in my Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I want my hair like her. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have a dream, Joe. Gotta have Brilliant. a dream. So, um, yeah, I mean, this just looks incredible. I love the fact that the plus four scene is suddenly becoming so active and they're doing stuff that no one thought was possible. So, like you said, Joe, it is free to download. So I'll link that up in the show notes as well on their plus four world. Now, we have got, um, we're going to be talking about possibly the most obscure flash cart that we've ever heard of in just a moment. And uh, some more big news if you are an Atari fan in just a second. Before we do that, just a sec to say that we do have a little patron that supports this podcast. And uh, thank you so much for all your support on there as well. Um, We're going to be doing our first Patrons Hangout of 2024 next Sunday, which does mean that we're finally at the end of January. I'm looking forward to that. And we're also doing an After Hours episode where, uh, you know, we're going to be playing games that we can't believe the other person hasn't played. So there's going to be some uh, (laughs) interesting reviews on those. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get to experience some new titles. Yeah, so if you uh, want to join our patrons community, we always love welcoming in new people. You'll get an invite to the uh, the Hangout that's coming up on uh, Sunday 28th at 8pm that night, um, 8 till 10 UK time we do that. Basically, it's like a massive Zoom call. Everyone gets together, we just nerd out, show off new pickups, that kind of thing. Have a bit of fun. So if you'd like to join us for that, we'd love to see you there. We have the After Hours podcast, which is for our gold members and above. If you join now, you'll unlock, I think it's 38 back episodes of that that you can check all those episodes out. And a new episode of that will be landing at the end of the month. We try and get the normal podcast out early if I can. You get it ad-free every week. And also you get around 10 to 15 minutes of extra news stories just for our patrons on every episode as well. But obviously the main reason to support the podcast on Patreon is just to make sure that we can keep the lights on and keep bringing out this podcast and pays, you know, all our hosting fees and all that kind of thing are covered. So we hugely appreciate your support. And we like to induct new members into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> and a massive thank you to our latest members. Thank you, Editor B. Kate Pankhurst. Pig Dam. And Mark Devlin, who all joined our patron community in the last couple of weeks. We massively appreciate that. And if you'd like to join us, all the details are on the website right now at theretrohour.com. Now, you did say, Ravi, that, you know, it is a very exciting time to be an Atari fan. Seems like there's so much going on in the Atari sphere recently it, it, it's mad there's so much choice there it's like which atari do i get <laughs> it's pretty there's crazy, a lot going yeah. on at the moment and uh, obviously it's been ces um recently as well over in vegas and um this is actually pretty exciting this is my arcade now we did talk about my arcade um a couple of years ago they've done you know they did that kind of mini atari mega player that was like that mini little arcade they also did a console as well didn't they i think it was called the uh, the game station remix they had some classic mm. Atari games in there too. And now they've basically got a, a nice little handheld way of playing classic Atari titles. I think Ravi said this a couple of times. Atari 
seem to be making much better decisions right now with like their licensing deals. Yeah. And kind of like who they're licensing it out to and not coming up with we mentioned earlier on the show is now eight years old, but I remember it felt about eight years ago where we were talking about the uh, Atari casino hotels. They were on about doing that, I don't think ever. They did go through a weird period a few years. Yeah, they went like, for a really weird period. Cryptocurrency. Yeah, whereas it's it's nice to see they've taken a big step back at the moment and I, kind of like rooting themselves in like the fans, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that... I don't know. I think there's going to be uh, have to go into the kind of ST and the Jaguar area yeah, eventually because they've got um, you know so many of the classics are coming out mm-hmm. now. Uh, they might kind of flood their own market <laughs> with the yeah. amount of stuff that's coming out. This well, this one true. is a bit different because this gives you a, a way to play classic Atari games, um, twenty six hundred games on the go. And interestingly, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a handheld console. That has a trackball built in. Yeah, Admittedly, a very small that's one. That's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, br- bring the trackball back. I absolutely love that as a as a controller. You know, I was playing Marble Madness the other day mm. with a, a trackball, and it's just oh, such a different experience of gaming. Well, this system yeah. is called the Atari Game Station Portable. So tell us a bit about the specs of this, Joe. What can we expect? Um, well, you know, the big reveal <laughs> was the, uh, the mini trackball on there, um, as well as a uh, paddle controller you know, the little dial controller, which we have seen before, you know, kind of like in modern iterations and stuff like that. But seeing them together on a handheld is really cool. Um, It's got a seven inch uh, high resolution screen on there. Um, And obviously it's portable, rechargeable battery, etc. Kind of the shape and size of it kind of reminds me, uh, obviously it's going to be bigger than an iPhone, but the shape and look of it really remind me of an iPhone for some reason. Uh, maybe it's just the shape there. It's a bit like a, an Evercade to me, maybe. It reminds me a bit, you know, the, the handheld Evercade. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, from the back, because it's kind of got those, like, grips on the back of it that you yeah. can't really see from the front. But, yeah, I think this is really cool. Portable 2600, um, like you say, paddle control based on the CX-30 um, from, from you know, kind of like original Atari games in the arcade and obviously the, the old trackballs. It's got a dial on it did. as well, hasn't it? Um, yeah, that's the paddle that I was on about, yeah. Oh, the paddle, yeah. Good, and good for just, Tempest and Pong. And, yeah, yeah, that, yeah but I, I was just thinking of Tempest exactly when I yeah. saw that. I was like, that would be great, yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm reading about this is, um, I mean, it, it mentions that um, obviously you've got, you know, the, the usual stuff in there, like rechargeable battery, you know, seven-inch high-resolution yeah. screen. All I've heard from uh, the reports is it's got a load of pre-installed Atari classics on there yeah. as well. I've been trying to find a list. I'm not there sure isn't anything, is there? Well, they had that um, uh, Game Station Pro as well before uh, the Atari one, which came out from my arcade, and that had you know two hundred games on it. So, right, um, yeah, I think there might be a huge list coming out for this, and um, yeah, that was a hundred dollars, uh, well, ninety nine, ninety nine. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure they will, you know, release a a full list of it at some point as well. Which, um, and again, the thing I'm wondering is basically, can you load your own games onto these? I imagine you will be able to, whether they... Maybe not of, officially. Yeah, officially <laughs> yeah. Is, is, always the, is always the question. But, you know, it just says, like, you know, it will be... The trackable will be compatible with such games as Centipede, Millipede, yeah. Missile Command, you know, and, you know, the uh, the paddle was used for Breakout and Canyon yeah. Bomber and stuff like that. So we'll see what games they do come out with or if it's just this is the unit and then you go do what you want to do with it because some of them are a little bit like that as well but yeah it looks pretty cool no news on the price as Ravi says but imagine probably around the 100 pounds mark they usually are 
they must have a huge timeline of what they're aiming for and you know making sure all these are released at different times and stuff it's it's really interesting to see this level of you know commitment to the old devices and and the old legacy um you know we've seen sega doing stuff but nothing to this level atari seemed to be really really pushing it at the moment and I've seen some people complain about that, like how many more ways do we need to play Tory games? And I get that you can do it, you know, you can run, I mean, God, you can easily do this. You can run like Atari 2600 titles just on a television's firmware these days. You know, you've yeah, actually run more advanced games you know on your TV. Had the Atari 50th collection out yeah, as well. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's been tons of stuff. But I don't think, you know, having more options is not a bad thing at all. I think, you know, again, like we said before, people want it, they'll buy it. If they don't, they won't. Yeah, I if think, there's um, a market for it and they yeah. think that they'll actually sell it you know uh yeah i've got a feeling that might you know maybe people will get a bit kind of overwhelmed of you know make it a bit tiring sometimes to see the same old games coming out all the time but i think you know you, you made an interesting point there you know i think it would be interesting to see atari doing like a a way to play st games again or it's, it's, which it's might be more difficult eventually hasn't it you know yeah i mean um, if they can do the a500 mini they could do an atari st mini or you know, yeah. a Jaguar. I think there would be a market for it. You know, if they're, if they're doing stuff like um, licensing out the Atari 400, and a Joe would be the first in line to get a, an Atari Jaguar Mini. Yeah, I would be. And I think they're going to run out of you know, ways to, to repackage 2,600 games in VCS. Yeah. yeah. I, get, I, I do agree. I think kind of, yeah, it's great that we've got so many options. It might be time to kind of start thinking about something else now. I do see your point. Uh, but if you're doing a play Atari 2600 games on the go, legally, officially Atari branded, um, then these are coming soon. So I'll shove that link in our show notes as well. Now, there's one more thing to talk about before we hop into uh, this week's very special guest, um, the Casio Loopy. Now, I think we do actually cover the Casio Loopy with Lewis Packwood. We're going to be talking about obscure systems in just a minute. And um, the Casio Loopy, we have talked about this before. This was a games console released by Casio, who are mainly known for calculators and watches, uh, came out in the mid-90s, October 1995. Interestingly, in Japan only, but it was marketed exclusively towards preteen girls. So that was the audience. I mean, there were you might have seen videos on this. It came in came with a built-in thermal colour printer, and the idea was that you'd be able to print out, you know, stickers that you'd, uh, you know, put on your... I would have loved that when I was younger, you know, <laughs> a console that could print out stickers. Yeah, the loop is interesting and, um, you know, it's a, it's a rare console. It's, it's quite hard to, to get and the games, I can imagine, are even harder. Well, the games well, on any- it, I mean, that they're generally focused around things like fashion and dating and, you know, things that are kind of stereotypically associated with, you know, young girls in the mid-90s. But yeah, there wasn't many games came out for this at all. 11. It was 11 titles <laughs> made for it. Um which kind of leads on to this week's story about it because of with there only being 11 games and it being a commercial failure, they've become very hard to kind of, you know, find on eBay, et cetera, attain, Um, which, you know, (laughs) leads nicely into the, uh, is it the floopy drive? I love that name. The yeah, floopy so drive. This is a loopy. Yeah. This is the floopy. But like, yeah. I read it as floppy at first, like a floppy drive. But no, it's a yeah, floopy same. Drive. And I was like, wait, am I reading this wrong? Is it a floppy drive? <laughs> is it a floopy drive? But yeah, the floopy drive that has uh, been made by Roger Brunstein, who has created quite a few flash carts now. Um, and this is going to only be $90 and an alternative way to uh, <laughs> to, to emulate and play on your uh, your loopy drive if you've got one, Ravi. <laughs> I think I think this is great because this is like the exact use case for a, a, a kind of flash cart or EverDrive or, you know, one of these multi-cart things uh, that you can put 
SD cards in and and load it up with uh, it's it's probably going to spur on a bit of development i think and uh you know people can use it to test stuff that they've done test code and we might start seeing some uh, more loopy titles coming out in the future a port of doom maybe for the loopy yeah <laughs> someone's got to do that <laughs> print off your doom stickers there was also a uh, video capture accessory called the magical shop for the nice. loopy as well so you know maybe we could see uh some uh some capture card for Doom on the loopy, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's quite cool. It's also got um, a USB-C attached to it, so you can uh, do data transfer like directly to it as well. And uh, that might be really good for testing. And, yeah, I mean, that is one thing that does kind of open up the market to homebrew on it, you know, the fact that you can transfer files back and forth between it. It's only got um, 32 megs of flash memory on there, but like you said, with only 11 titles, probably doesn't need all that much more, if I'm honest. Um, it's got a battery-backed SRAM on there for save game data as well. And um, <laughs> this is kind of an indication of how niche this market is. He's actually only making, the first production run is going to be 15 units. But the good wow. news is he's sold out already, apparently. Oh, so there, there was at least 15 Cassio Loopy fans in the world. I, I, and I've just seen like the trailer, and I think that's a really good point in there that, you know, this system was released in Japan, but you yeah. can get translated versions of the games. So, mm. you know, you can run the translated versions now. And that's, that's really cool because it could open up the whole library for you. I know you want one of these, Ravi, with, with a Floopy drive in there and print out some stickers to put on your He-Man lunchbox. I'm wearing a Casio watch at the moment. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, totally. Perfect. Compliment it, won't it? So if you are one of the, uh, I don't know how many listeners we've got with a Casio Loopy in their collection, if you have got one, let us know. Um, that'll be exciting news for you, though, that the, uh, there is a flash cut now for possibly one of the world's most obscure consoles, um, the Casio Loopy. But I'm sure we're going to get into even more obscure ones with our special guest, Lewis Packwood, who is the author of this uh, new book, Curious Video Game Machines. Now, before we do that, I mean, here in the UK at the moment, oh my God, it's so cold, isn't it? I think today it was like minus three. We're slowly getting about maybe... It's definitely going to snow as we're recording this, oh, yeah. All these forecasters, you know, more bad weather coming and people talking about, you know, the fact that they're always feeling a bit tired in January now. Christmas is out the way and we're into the new year and the weather's drab and still dark all the time. Maybe you need something to get you going a little bit around this time of year. Well, let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to uh, this week's sponsor. It is our wonderful friends at AG1. Now, this is something that has become part of my daily routine over the last couple of weeks because um, AG1 were kind enough to send us a free sample of this, which I know you and I have been testing this out, Ravi. It's really a way to think about, you know, changing the way that you think about your daily nutrition because, you know, I've tried vitamin tablets and stuff and iron supplements, never really affect me all that much. But this, you know, rather than having all those different tablets laid out every morning, this is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 high quality ingredients designed to support your physical and your mental health as well. And if you found this, the really simple thing about this is how easy it is to use as well. It's literally one scoop into a glass of water when you wake up in the morning. And basically, you've got, you know, a powerful mix in there, all the vitamins you need, the minerals and the nutrients you need to keep your energy up and your mind sharp throughout the day. Yeah, I've, I've basically had it in my daily routine now and I've replaced coffee, which, yeah. um, you know, was usually my thing, wake up in the morning and have some coffee. But um, having this is a lot better as well because you don't get that uh, caffeine kind of crash that you oh. usually get with coffee. And, you know, you're also getting a lot of that, like, nutrient replenishment. Yeah, exactly. And, and obviously this time of year, everyone I know 
as that flu or, you know, the C word, which you shouldn't mention for the algorithm, uh, you know, or, or a bad cold. It's all going around at the moment as well. And actually it helps, you know, support your immune system as well. You know, vitamin C, zinc, all the key ingredients in there as well that can help keep your immune system in top shape as well. So it's a really simple way to get everything you need and make it a really seamless part of your morning as well. Really simple daily habit. Takes up less than a minute and will make a massive difference to how you feel as well. And it tastes gorgeous as well. So maybe your news resolution was to kind of get a bit more in shape and, uh, you know, get a bit healthier as well. If you're wondering about the quality of it, AG1 is actually NSF certified for sport, meaning it's gone through some rigorous testing and certification as well. So you can trust that what you're getting, what you see on the label is exactly what you're getting in there. Nothing more, nothing less. So if you want to try this out, a really convenient way, why don't you give AG1 a try? And of course, you know, we always get you some little bonuses for supporting our sponsors. So if you go to this website right now, drinkag1.com slash retro hour, that is drink, letter A, letter G, number one, dot com slash retro hour, you will get a free one year supply of vitamin D and a five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase of AG1. So head to this website right now, drinkag1.com slash retro hour and check it out today. And a massive thank you to our friends at AG1 for their continued support of the podcast. Okay, next, going inside the world of obscure and weird and maybe some kind of consoles and computers you haven't heard of before with the author of the new book, Curious Video Game Machines, Lewis Packwood is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And now, our guest today is someone I'm sure you're familiar with from his work in the likes of a Retro Gamer magazine, the wonderful website Time Extension. He also writes for Edge and The Guardian as well. And the reason we've got him on today is to talk about this incredible new book called Curious Video Game Machines, looking at some of the more obscure oddities from the world of video gaming history. So let's welcome on our guest this week, Lewis Packwood. How's it going, Lewis? Hello. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah. Really excited about this new book. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, if you've ever heard the podcast before, you know, I, I kind of thrive on the uh, the weirder side of uh, video game history. So, and I've been reading through your book and it's it's got some incredible stuff I've never heard of before that, as uh, Ravi mentioned before we started recording, I will no doubt be looking for on eBay at the end of this interview today. So, uh, <laughs> you might spend, cost me a bit of money after this. But, I mean, we also had to kind of, kind of find out a bit of a background on our guests as well, kind of their, you know, their roots in gaming. So, just, you know, before we get into the book, what's kind of your background? Where did it all start for you, your interest in, in the gaming industry? and games itself. Yeah, well, I'm in my mid-40s now and I, I kind of started gaming, we'll be back in the Spectrum day. So that was the first game I ever remember playing was Horace Goes Skiing on the ZX Spectrum. I think my dad owned a Spectrum. And then after that, I was really into the Amiga and uh, had a 500, then a 1200 and then got a Game Boy and NES, Super NES and then PlayStation, Dreamcast. And it just carried on from there. And I never really stopped playing video games. And obviously now in my career, revolves around them. I went, I started becoming a freelance uh, game journalist about 10 years ago now and gradually built it up until now. That's what I do full time. But before that, I was a scientific copy editor. <laughs> so it was oh, quite well, a different. Quite the change, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite a change. Did, did you come across any strange machines and obscurities when you were a kid? Well, I think now, I mean, there were all these ones that I, I kind of craved that I saw in magazines, you know, the PC engine. These these desirable things that you could only get in Japan or for ridiculous money on Grey Import. Um, 
vaguely remember some of the tabletop games. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, there's that wonderful new book coming out about the, the tabletop handheld machines, uh, like the grandstand invaders from space and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I remember those. We had a load of those knocking around when we were kids, the hand-me-downs from uncles and aunts and things like that. And so, yeah, I remember those, those wonderful tabletop machines. But yeah, apart from that, not so much. This book was more inspired by the kind of conversations I've had with people I've interviewed over the years. Mm. There's been, in particular, I spoke to Chris Crawford a couple of years ago for a feature on his game Balance of Power for Retro Game. So Chris Crawford, yes. he's, he's quite a storied kind of gamer, uh, game developer, I should say. I mean, he started off at Atari and, mm. and then went off to form in Magic with a bunch of other people and, and coded Demon Attack. And then later did Balance of Power for the Mac and then went on to form GDC, was one of the founders of GDC. So I was speaking to him about Balance of Power, this amazing kind of game he made for the for the Mac, where you're kind of controlling one of the two superpowers and trying to prevent a, a nuclear war, essentially. And uh, we were talking, he just kind of like, just casually mentioned this this thing. And it was like, oh, uh, do you want to hear about this thing called Kim Tanktix? I was like, oh, what's Kim Tanktix? And he, he showed me some pictures of this amazing machine this kind of big wooden contraption with a kind of plexiglass red lid and a couple of little controllers that looked like they were made out of calculators and I was he was like what's this is always a war game machine I made in the 1970s <laughs> I was like what and I never heard of this thing before and, and I don't think he really showed it to anyone I think back in the 70s when he made it he, he took it to a couple of war game conventions and people played on it and it was all based on this kit computer called a Kim one it was one of the very first microcomputers that was available. Commodore, I think, yeah. Yeah, it was based on a MOS 6502 chip. So one of the first Mm. things to to use that chip and you built it yourself. And yes, we made this and he decided to make this bespoke kind of game called Kim Tanktix and just took it around to conventions and showed people and he would hang a curtain between the players (laughs) so that they couldn't see what, what each other were doing. And it was all done in real time and all made control with these controllers with, with calculator parts. I thought this is a fascinating story. I really I want to write this, but it's kind of an odd one. It's like not something that generally you, you kind of see in a publication like Edge or, or something like that. This is really odd story that doesn't really fit anything else. And, and it made me think of a few other odd stories I've written about down the lines, like the Galaxia Yugoslavian kind of kit computer and the, um, the avatar machine that I'd written about. You know, the great about an artist called Mark Owens. And I thought, well, you know, there's loads of this stuff out here and no one's really talking about it. Let's write a book about it. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating story because we were lucky enough to have Chris on the podcast. I think it was episode uh, 270, if people want to hear a bit more mm. about uh, Kim Tanktix. And it was, it was one of those stories where, you know, cause I'd, I'd like to think having done this podcast for like, you know, eight years now, we kind of know a lot of kind of the mainstream history of gaming, but there is so much out there that just doesn't get documented enough, like you said. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, Chris kind of started your idea then to write the book. How did you uh, choose the other kind of specific machines and games to feature in here then? How did your journey kind of go along? Yeah, it's been a bit of a process of elimination, partly. I mean, there there were more ones I wanted to write about. There were a few things, I don't want to kind of spoil what they were, but there were a few things I had to kind of ditch because I just couldn't find enough information on them. Mm. And that's the trouble, I think, you know, with with these obscure machines, it's so hard to track down the people involved in making them or or collecting them or or even any information. I I know there's one machine in here, the Interton VC4000, and I contacted the German... Uh, computer museum 
And they said, oh, well, we've basically got nothing on this, you know. But luckily <laughs> there are kind of uh, collectors out there who do, who do kind of collect these things and are able to kind of provide a bit more information. And the German Computer Museum did actually point me in the direction of some, some really useful articles that, that I found uh, down the line. But the, the other ones that I've kind of chosen, that, I mean, you know, as you said, like it's interesting to talk about the, the obscure, the weird things. And, and one of the things that really ignited my interest was when, reading the replay, The History of Video Games by Tristan Donovan, which I have to say is one of the best books out there on the history of, of games. It's fascinating. It's really, really good. I highly recommend it. But there's just one sentence, I think, which just says, uh, talking about Dragon's Lair, and then it says, oh, and uh, Rick Dyer went on to create the, the laser disc based Halcyon console. And then that was it. And I was like, what? I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of this console. And it's that little thing, you know, these things are relegated to footnotes and I wanted to kind of explore them a bit more and find out a bit more because there's nothing out there about most of these machines. It's uh, very interesting because, you know, the, the popular machines are, are kind of dominant, but there's all these great stories that you're exploring about, um, you know, other obscurities. And uh, one comes from Atari as well, which was uh, the Home Pong and uh, uh, yeah. video music as well, which um, I've not really heard of. How how did that help shape the uh, video game industry? Yeah, so there's a whole. The second chapter is all about these uh, Atari consoles, you know. And I don't know about you, but I'm familiar with like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred and the kind of later things that Atari made. But the the home pong and the the earlier consoles, the dedicated consoles they made. I they played one game and that was that was it. Then you had to buy a new console if you wanted a new game. They didn't really make it over to the UK. We did get some Pong machines in the form of like the Binatone things, but they didn't really kind of come over here. And one machine in particular, really, I was amazed. Kind of, I saw a picture of it and I was like, what on earth is that? And that is Stunt Cycle, which is on the cover of the book as well. You'll see it's just a little mm. thing with two handles. It's like a motorbike handle. And uh, that came out in like 1977, I think it was. And it just played one game called Stunt Cycle. There were like four variations, but it was essentially one game. Um, it was based on a Atari coin-op from 1975, I think it was, or 74. And you just hold, you just pull down on the throttle and you have this little evil Knievel type kind of stunt rider and he jumps over some buses and that's pretty much the whole game. It's pretty simple. Um, but just seeing this weird little machine, like I'd never seen it before. And then that made me think, right, well, what other weird things has Atari put out? And then discovering the video music, which is so rare and so obscure. I and mean, it was absolute flop when it came out. It's essentially a, a visual synthesizer, like a light synthesizer. Mm. The idea is you plug it into your hi-fi and then it outputs uh, lights in time with the music. And they're, they're kind of like these triangles that flash and, and grow and, and shrink in time with the music. But it was ridiculously expensive. It was the equivalent of about $200 in 1977, which is about $1,000 now. Yeah, <laughs> um, and all it did was just make some 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 flashing lights on the screen. So obviously it didn't do very well, and was soon discounted and and uh, lost to history really. But now that means it's incredibly rare, and uh, I was really lucky enough to find a collector who had one, was able to take some photos and give me some more information about it. Uh, which is Control Alt Reese, who um you may have yes. may know of already. He's got a YouTube channel. We know Reese. We know you know Reese. So yeah, he he. Uh, he, he was really helpful in, in kind of putting that bit together, but it was fascinating. And the brilliant thing about writing this book is that the more research you do, the more stuff 
comes up. And it was just the journey of discovery. And in fact, in writing this book, there's like 18 chapters in there that I have enough information on new consoles that I'd never heard of and new computers to fill another book easily. <laughs> Volume so, two on the way. <laughs> I would love I would love to do a follow-up. I'm hoping that if this one sells well enough, then I'll, I'll have... I'll be able to to get the green light to do a follow up because I I've got so many more stories I want to tell. Oh, that needs to happen. And I mean, just even looking through them, I and you mentioned like obviously those kind of early experiments by Atari, and kind of looking over at kind of what was happening in in Europe as well. I mean, there was these systems that you mentioned in the book that I'd never heard of before, uh, the German Interton consoles. So tell us a bit about those <laughs> and how they kind of contributed to the the early console race over here in Europe. Yeah, that's. So, I mean, yeah, the Interton VC four thousand is. The, really obscure console that I only found about out about when I was interviewing someone else, a collector about the, the Halcyon, the RDO Halcyon that I mentioned earlier, the Laserdisc console. And he just casually said, oh, have you heard of the Interstellar VC4000? I was like, no. And then he just brings out this thing on this video call. And I was like, what on earth is that? And it's this console that was made by a, a hearing aid company, Interstellar's a hearing aid company. And somehow they decided to get into video games. And they started with some Pong consoles. They licensed the technology for the Magnavox Odyssey, the first games console. And they produced their own version of the Odyssey, which is kind of a weird hybrid machine called the Interton 2000. And uh, it used cartridges, but those cartridges were just analog, essentially. It was a very odd machine. And then they released a a few follow-ups to that. And then eventually the Interton VC4000 in 1978, um, which lasted for about four years, till about 1982. And then then Interton kind of, uh, decided to go back to hearing aids, which is still what they're doing now. <laughs> but yeah, it was a really odd one. It was quite popular in Germany and it was sold in a few other countries in Europe. I don't think it was sold in the UK, or at least I've not found any evidence that it was. Um, but it was fairly popular. Uh, nowhere near as popular as the Atari, which I think sold quite well in, in Germany particularly, not so much in the UK. But what an odd thing. And it was based on this weird chip, this Signetics, this Philips Signetics chip, uh, which hardly any other machines use. But then there was this whole crop of other consoles that use this same chip. And bizarrely, a load of the same games are on these consoles and on the Interton. Oh, and wow. I managed to track down someone who ran the manufacturing plant in Hong Kong for Radiofin. And he explained that actually Philips provided them a load of games along with the chip. So that explains partly at least why all these machines have the same games on them, because it was actually Philips making the games. Well, interestingly, you cover the fact that, you know, uh, Germany was split back then and there was, uh, you know, an East German machine as well that kind of came out of the Soviet Union. So it's interesting to see the kind of two parallels of those devices. Yeah, the BSS-01. Yeah, East Germany's one and only kind of (laughs) console. It was some point, I think it was in the late 1970s, about 1979, that the kind of higher-ups in Germany, East Germany, I should say, decided that Germany needed a console and they were going to put all of the state apparatus towards making one and they manufactured this thing. But it was ridiculously expensive for considering how much uh, people earned in the country at the time. And I think it only ever really found use in like youth centres and things. And then a couple of years later, they decided to stop producing it and that was the end. But uh, it was an odd, odd little thing. Interestingly, it used a, uh, a chip that was manufactured by GI, General Instrument, um, right. which I'm not quite sure how they managed to get it con- considering there were kind of import bans at the time on, on things like technology and, and microchips like that. But So there's still more to be told, I think, about that that console. There's still a few mysteries surrounding it. 
We also mentioned um, you cover portable systems in here as well. And one that I found quite interesting was the story of the uh, the MB Microvision. I mean, kind of what was groundbreaking about that system, like in the context of you know portable gaming. Yeah, that was fascinating. It was about ten years before the Game Boy was released, and it's essentially the first portable console with interchangeable cartridges, um, which no one had really done before. But it was an odd beast. It, I mean, I say it's got interchangeable cartridges, but really you just snap off the entire front of the machine and then <laughs> plug in another front of the machine for a different game. All that's on the actual base unit is just a a, a screen and like a, a kind of pad, a sensitive pad for which the buttons lay on top of and the buttons in themselves are actually on the cartridges. Really odd thing. Um, but it was designed by Jay Smith who, who went on to do the Vectrex, which is much better known, I think, at least in collector circles, the first vector-based console. Yeah, especially with uh, the Milton Bradley connection. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And I think he wanted to do a follow-up to the Microvision. The original was a very basic kind of LCD screen, one of the very first LCD screens. So it's only, I think, 16 pixels wide or something like that. It's, it's very, very, very basic. But he had plans to do a color version. He wanted to do a follow-up. Um, but then MB decided to pull the plug on it. And he, but he ended up doing the Vectrex instead. But yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's far, it's giant. It's considering it's portable, it's absolutely huge. Uh, um, and I think when I was doing my research, I found that MB actually decided they wanted it to be big, according to Jay. I presumably with the the idea that the bigger it is, the more expensive it seems. <laughs> Whereas uh, really, they could have made it a lot smaller. There's no reason it has to be that that big. Yeah, but it did go on to influence Nintendo, and I, I know that the. I think it's Satoru Iwada. I'm probably saying his name wrong there. He was a big fan of of, of Brickbuster on on the Microvision, and said that was one of his favourite games. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that it had a kind of interchangeable front because um, you know you've got all the different button combinations and stuff, and uh, you know later on stuff like the Atari Jaguar controller had kind of overlays that you put on, but this one you'd put on top, and it would give you the the right buttons for each title. Yeah, although most of them didn't really use the buttons. I think there's only one title that actually uses all of them. I mean, you can have 12 buttons on the screen. I mean, most of them only use one or two. But yeah, it was quite an interesting idea, the idea that it was a, like an, an adaptable controller. You can use whichever buttons you, you, you see fit for each game. Um, I think the there were some differences between the US and the European versions. I think the US version, they just had a thin, thin film on the, the actual cartridge and you kind of like pushed your, pushed your finger down onto this film and then threw onto the, the, the buttons that were hidden underneath. Um, and then they quickly realised, I think people were just tearing through this film with their fingernails. So when they released it in Europe, uh, Inkster came with like little hard plastic buttons that went over the top. Yeah, kind of go back to Atari as well. I mean, something I found very interesting in the book was kind of the, the, the idea, you know, Atari's VCS dev kit, how that kind of challenged... Atari's own market dominance. What kind of happened there from from your research? Yeah, so it, it's an odd thing, is it? Thinking back now, like now we're so used to third party developers and and you know how important they are for the success of the console. But you know, back in the nineteen seventies, you know, Atari wanted it all for themselves. No, no one really did that. You know, if you produced a console, you that your company made all of the games for it, and so it was quite pioneering that David Crane and and uh, and Larry Kaplan and the others who, who formed Activision they left Atari. And they had to come up with a way of making games for the Atari. And I spoke to kind of David Crane or uh, over email and, and like asked him about how exactly they went about doing this. And he very casually said, "Oh, we just got this 
this computer and we plugged it into this and did all this. And I was like, well, uh, and he explained how he made what they called the blue box, which was in a, the first development kit. Because how do you get uh, games onto a console? You know, when you think about it, you can't, this, there has to be a, a way to move the code from your, your computer actually onto the, the, the cartridge. And, and they kind of came up with a way of, uh, of doing that. And then, of course, once they'd figured it out, then loads of other people managed to work it out independently. Gary Kitchen, who went on to create Donkey Kong for the uh, uh, ColecoVision and the Atari, he, he kind of worked out independently how to, to code, make a development kit for the Atari uh, 2600. And then, yeah, and then it wasn't just him. Loads of people started doing it. And it was uh, it's fascinating to see everyone kind of independently working out how to do this. It's not obvious... Mm. You know, you have to have quite a bit of knowledge to try and back, essentially backwards engineer the console and try and work out how it works and then plug it into an Apple II or, or whatever you need to use to, to actually make it work. So I was kind of like fascinated by that and how people did that when such a thing like a, a development kit just didn't exist. You know, there was no need to have one because there were no consoles before that. Yeah, it's remarkable as well that Atari were, you know, so against it too. Because like you said today, it's just such a, a given part of the industry. You know, console couldn't survive without third-party development. And obviously that kind of, you know, Activision spun out of Atari for that very reason that they just wanted to keep it all for themselves. Well, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Atari sued Activision in 1980, yeah. I think it was, you know, trying to stop them, get them out of business, even though they were releasing games that were huge hits and of undoubtedly helped to sell the Atari. You know, Pitfall, for example, you know, it's like one of the top five selling games, I think, ever on the Atari. And then eventually in 1982, the court ruled that essentially legitimised third party and said, mm. you know, Activision's fine to carry on doing this, but they have to pay royalties to Atari. And that model is now kind of entrenched um, throughout, you know, the games industry. People can make games for whatever machine they want, but they have to pay a royalty. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're kind of going through the book as well. I mean, just, you know, to touch on another few, you know, systems that people might not be familiar with, and I certainly wasn't. Um, I, I find it interesting as well in that kind of pre-internet era, how many different machines were localised to a certain region as well. Um, and one that is seemed quite significant as well is from uh, Yugoslavia, an open source computer. Tell us a bit about this <laughs> one, this is quite significant. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I, I love the Galaxy. Yeah, Gal- the Galaxy is it's named after a, a science magazine that, that, that was kind of published uh, the original plans to make one. And it was by this guy called uh, Voya Antonish. He's a wonderful man. He lives in California now. He moved there a few years ago. Um, and he's one of the kind of unsung heroes, I think, of, of the computer world because he, he he was graf- grappling with this problem in the early 1980s. Yugoslavia was essentially a communist state, although it wasn't allied with the Soviet Union at the time, semi-independent state. And it had, but it had some very strict laws about imports. You couldn't import anything above the value of about 50 Deutschmarks, which meant that no one could import computers. No one could import Spectrums or, or C64s because they were too expensive. So they either had to resort to smuggling or Antonich kind of realised maybe there was a way to create their own computer from parts that they could afford, you know, could could get around the smuggling, mm. could get around the, the import laws. So he came up with the idea for this Galaxy. It's a very kind of underpower computer. If you could based essentially less powerful than a Spectrum. Um, but he came up with the plans, got together with the editor of this science magazine, and they published a special issue showing people how to make their own computer. And 
using parts that could be easily kind of sourced and wouldn't fall afoul of the of the laws. And it was really popular. Thousands of people made their own galaxies and, and kind of uniquely they they didn't kind of include instructions on how to make a case. I mean there there, there was some kind of like guide or maybe you can use a bit of circuit board, you can cut up, you know, a case. But most people just went to town and made their own cases. So there were galaxies out there that were covered in wood or, or metal or some that are just completely left naked. So I love this idea that, you know, there's no standard look to one of these machines. You know, they all look completely unique and individual. Yeah, that's um, amazing. I mean, it's kind of a bit like the Raspberry Pi today, isn't it? I suppose everyone's got their own different cases on them a bit, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's just like that. And it was fairly short-lived. I mean, the, after the Galaxia came out, the, uh, they actually changed the law. I think the year after it came out, uh, after the magazine was published with the instructions on how to make one. Um, and then every, everyone started importing the spectrums and things like that. So it didn't last a long time, but it you know it was very influential. It got a lot of people into coding or interested in computing. Mm. And I think uh, Antonish thinks that actually it was the law was changed because of the Galaxia. You know, it might have been one of the things that really really nudge things forward. We, we, we can never know for sure, but mm. it certainly seems unlikely to be uh, a coincidence. How did the Enterprise console in uh, 1985 change the video gaming industry? <laughs> well, I don't think it really changed the video gaming industry in the UK very much. It was mm. very much one of those things that, that arrived and then disappeared almost as quickly. But it changed games industry in Hungary. Uh, I, and I, I love this story. It was, it was such a... I was fascinated by the Enterprise because for a start... It's a brilliant looking computer. It looks gorgeous. If you've ever seen a picture of the Enterprise yeah, I've just Googled 64 it <laughs> or, or 128, it's got this amazing little built-in joystick, which I don't think I've ever seen before on a, on a computer, uh, certainly not a UK computer anyway. So it's a, a wonderful little thing. And it's got these beautiful color keys as well. Interestingly, uh, something it shares with the Amstrad CPC, the, the Enterprise was actually revealed, the promo was, was actually revealed, I think back in 1983 or early 1984, and then the CPC didn't come along till about a year later. So some people were kind of yeah. suggesting maybe someone copied copied the coloured keys. We'll never know for sure. I did. I the did whole colour scheme of the device looks very similar to the Amstrad, it does doesn't it? Look you very black similar. casing and yeah. It does look very similar. I did tweet Alan Sugar to ask whether uh, whether it was a coincidence. <laughs> he didn't reply. So we'll, but maybe if you ever get him on the show to interview, you could ask him. First question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I mean, but that was the trouble. The enterprise it was too long in the, in the oven, really, and it was it was announced in I think it was early '83, and the specs looked amazing. But then it didn't come out until 1985. By which point, the abstract CPC and a load of other computers had come out and essentially undercut it. And by the time it actually came out, it was a bit of a white elephant, really. So it was mostly down to trying to sort out its its kind of custom graphics and sound chips. That that seems to be the thing that really held it up in development. Even but, like Z80 based as well, like the Amstrad, which is very interesting. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. But it did have an unlikely afterlife in, mm. in Hungary. Uh, it ended up being the third most popular micro over there, according to some of the enterprise fans I spoke to. And it, you know, it had a really lasting impact in that country. And even now, there's still a magazine dedicated to the enterprise that's still being pu- oh, produced wow. by enterprise fans called Enterpress. And there's also stories of it being uh, sold to be used in schools in Kazakhstan. I know that in Egypt it was fairly popular as well made as a business business machine. So it's fascinating. You know, things that essentially were flops mm. here uh, has just gone on to kind of have another 
life somewhere else, you know. And I, I think that's part of the thing I really wanted to to talk about in the book. Like everywhere's different, you know. We we hear this narrative of of the the definitive history of the of the games industry, but quite often it's US centric or Japan centric, and mm. actually every country had a completely different experience, you know. I think in Korea as well, I, I talk about a bit about Korea, about what was going on over there, and that was completely different, absolutely unlike any mm. anywhere else in the world. Well, one thing, you know, we today obviously we take for granted that, you know, gaming's for everyone. Um, but one thing you touch on in the book is obviously, I mean, back in the 80s, it did definitely seem like it was a bit more of a, a boys thing stereotypically. And you talk about the impact of uh, games consoles that were actually targeted specifically at female gamers in the in the 80s and, and somewhat the 90s as well. I mean, any examples of those that kind of spring to mind that, that you've researched in the book? Yeah, I mean, the most wonderful looking one is and the wonderfully named one as well is the super cassette vision ladies which comes in a pink briefcase <laughs> and and comes with the game called milky princess which has got to be one of the most uniquely named games yeah, i've ever heard <laughs> it does sound very wrong it was basically a horoscope game had the the kind of equivalent of russell grand or mystic meg endorsing it, it was rene vandal mm. who was like a astrologer in japan at the time there's nothing really to the game you you essentially put in your date of birth and answer a couple of questions and then it gives you a horoscope. And then there's a little kind of basic kind of platformy thing as well. But it is, it's weird. Yeah, there, there's been a few attempts to make consoles aimed at girls. So the Super Cassette Vision Ladies was a, a kind of pink version of, of the Super Cassette Vision, which was a, a console released by Epoch, mm. who also did Sylvanian Families, interestingly. But Epoch were the, the market leader before the, the Famicom came along. The Cassette Vision, the original Cassette Vision was... It was one of the biggest selling consoles in Japan before the Fabicom arrived. And the Super Cassette Vision never really replicated that success. Um, but they did release this one-off version in 1985, the, the Super, Super Cassette Vision Ladies. So difficult to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue, that name, does it? It doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it did particularly well. And it's very hard to come by now. Like, I know I've spoken to collectors who've been searching for one for years and they and they really very rarely come up uh, for sale. Um, yeah, and then I know there's a Cassio Lupi as well in Japan, like about a decade later that they tried, another kind of female-orientated system. Yeah, yeah, the Cassio Lupi, that was, that was a console that printed stickers. It came out yeah. around the same time as the PlayStation, um, and, but it was kind of pretty underpowered compared to the PlayStation. It was very much more based around the Super NES, but then had this amazing kind of sticker printing bit stuck on the side of it. Interesting, I spoke to some of the engineers who, who designed the, the Loopy and they said that it was never originally meant to be for girls. That was just something that marketing mm. came up halfway through development and said, oh, we're going to target this to girls, just so you know. But yeah, it was an interesting idea. And it, weirdly, sticker printing did catch on in a big way in Japan a few years later with the Purikura machines, which are essentially like glorified photo booths that printed out uh, stickers that you could uh, photograph of you and on paper, the, the Loopy was capable of doing that. He had this little peripheral that, that you attach a digital camera, so you could essentially turn it into a Purikura machine and, and print out uh, stickers of, of photos with, with all alterations made on top. But yeah, he never really caught on, which is a shame. I love as well, like, you know, you think back to the 90s, I remember stuff like Alex Phillips entering the market briefly with the CDI and obviously with uh, you know, Sony, who were previously many known as an electronics company. One that I, I don't read about too much in the, the gaming sphere, I think they're, they're manufactured by Dishwasher. Um, <laughs> Dai, Dai Wu, I think you pronounce their name. <laughs> they, they did it, their own console, didn't they? The, the Zemix console. That's right, yeah, Deu. Deu, so Deu, Deu is one of these... Deu, uh, right, yeah. That's it, Deu. They, 
they're, I think probably in the UK, most people just know them if they know them at all uh, for manufacturing cars. And that you might see the odd electronic product as well. They actually went out of business a few years ago, but then bits of it were, were the bits of the business were bought, were bought and carried on. So I think Daewoo shipbuilding's still going. Mm. But it's like all these companies, like these Korean conglomerates, like um, Samsung, and, and we know might know them for washing machines and air conditioners and things like that. But actually, they're doing everything from theme parks to ships to building buses to everything. So Daewoo in that respect, wasn't really unusual in the sense that it was getting into home electronics. And it started off making computers in the kind of early 80s, kind of late 70s. They were based around the MSX standard. Right. Which, I don't know if you, have you talked about the MSX standard on, on the podcast before? Yeah, we had an episode oh, with, yeah. our, remember Van, Van Victop, I believe he passed away a few years ago, but he, mm. yeah, he, did, he came on and did a, an MSX episode with us. You know, fascinating story there. And obviously something that wasn't that big over here, but definitely gain some traction in certain parts of the world. That's right. Yeah. I think it was quite big in the Netherlands and yeah. South America and certainly in Japan. Uh, so this idea of doing a standard for computers, a bit like the PC essentially, would do a, f- a few years later. And uh, I love the look of the Zamex as well. It oh. looks um, insane. Oh, yes. It's, it's, it either looks like a, a VR system or a, a helmet from a cyborg <laughs> or a kind of... Um, Portable early CD player as well. I've got to say, I, I, I genuinely think that the, the Zemex line of consoles are the most beautiful consoles ever made. They are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. There were, there were kind of there were about five of them altogether. There was the original Zemex, which came in a couple of different colours and it was kind of very chunky and plasticky and, and kind of beautifully made. And there was, there was a pink version. And then the Zemex V, which I think is the one that's at the front of the, the chapter in my book, which is this rocket-shaped red thing with like black bits down the side and it just looks fantastic. And there's even a brilliant asymmetrically coloured one where it's kind of blue on one side and yellow on the other. It just looks gorgeous. Kind yeah, of, do you remember uh, the, the Viewmaster toys in the 80s? It looks a bit like one of those, yes. the shape of it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Especially the yeah. But also the kind of uh, design of sports cars at the time. Definitely, yeah. Kind of uh, emulating that. That's it. Yeah. And then the Swan Song was this console, the last Zemex one they made, looked like the Starship Enterprise. It had this little kind of bit raised up the top in the shape of a disc. It was just the most crazy design of a, of a console you've ever seen. It was wonderful things. So I, I'd urge you to kind of look up the, the Zemex console because they were beautiful things. And they were never sold outside Korea. We never saw them outside of Korea. And then the console market in Korea completely died in the 90s and was uh, the only thing that lived on was PCs. And now it's it's predominantly kind of a, a PC-based kind of gaming industry in Korea. But, um, but yeah, this brief period in the 1980s, Zemex console rules. I was wondering, what are the implications of the uh, continued popularity of Fummy clones? Yeah, well, I spoke to a PhD researcher, who uh, Ian Larson, who, who's been looking into this. And I think the fascinating thing about Fummy clones, so it, which are clones of the Nintendo Fabicom, uh, is that for most countries, maybe not most, but certainly a good proportion of countries, they were the only experience they had of video games. There were places in Africa or Eastern Europe or that didn't actually have the official versions of these machines. The NES was never released in these these territories and they never got a Mega Drive or anything like that. The only consoles they had access to were these bootlegs, these these clones. So for many people, they were just as legitimate as as like a, an NES in, a, in this country or, or whatever machine. So there's a real nostalgia kind of tie to them. And 
think it's very, they're very rarely talked about or celebrated because of their kind of shady legality, you know, they're obviously mm. produced without license. But they are tied indelibly to people's childhoods. And people, you know, like in, in Poland talk fondly about Pegasus, you know, that was like one of the, mo- the major ones over there. And that was, that was the same as us talking about going out and playing the ZX Spectra or, or the C64 or, or anything like that. So I really wanted to kind of talk about them. And it's interesting as well in Russia, the Dendi almost became the official console ever. The Nintendo actually endorsed the, the Dendi, this Famiclone, uh, this clone of the, and they kind of struck a deal. Uh, Nintendo of America struck a deal with the people who made the, the Dendi saying that, okay, we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to this. You can carry on selling the Dendi, which had its own shops and a TV channel as well, you know, <laughs> or, or a TV show. You know, it was, it was advertised on TV and it was, you know, had all these official kind of shops that were selling the Dendi. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to this, but you have to sell the Super NES. That was the deal. Uh, and they did, but then I don't think the Super NES really took off over there because it was something like three times more expensive than the Dendi. And, yeah, people still buying the Dendi. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, um, so yeah, but it's fascinating to kind of see these parallel histories. You know, we, we there is no one history of video games. There's lots of different histories of video games according to which country you're in and who you speak to. One thing that was um, quite innovative, because obviously we saw kind of, you know, these, these kind of trends that came and went, and you touched on this in the book, uh, VHS-based video games. For example, uh, Action Max. So th- they were like an early attempt at like an interactive gaming experience, I guess, then, you know, using your, your standard video player. That's right, yeah. I mean, when you think about the idea of playing a, a VHS-based console, it just seems like a, a crazy idea. But then you start to think about it, and then you go, well, actually, I suppose, you know, we had games on you know, audio tapes, magnetic tapes when we, we were kids, you know, we were loading things on the on the spectrum. So why why not VHS tapes? Mm. But then the way it was kind of done, it was essentially you would play the tape and then there'd be some graphics overlaid on top. And most of the games that ended up coming out for these things were like shooting stuff. So you, you'd shoot things on the screen and the gun would register whether you'd hit it or not according to the flashing that it picked up on the object. So if it was flashing a certain way, it was scored, it was registered as a hit. It's it's as simple as that, really. Nothing had changed on screen. That's that's the thing. The game still played out. It's just basically watching a fifteen minute movie. Mm. The Action Max was one of the first ones. That was created by Worlds of Wonder, which is the same company that did Teddy Ruxpin and Laser Tag, mm. um, and it was formed by uh, an ex Atari guy who who also they they also got the deal to distribute the NES in in, in the US. So for a while they were really riding high, and then it all came crashing down a few years later in about nineteen. 19- End of 1987, there was a stock market crash and yeah, it didn't end well for them. Yeah, for those few brief years in the middle of the 80s, they could do no wrong. Night Trap Uh, was meant to be a a VHS game originally, I heard as well. Well, they had an atmosphere, didn't they? A few of those kind of board games, but uh, not not kind of interactive like this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I spoke to Rob Fullard, who uh, he worked on Night Trap for the Sega CD. Although it wasn't originally made for the Sega CD, it was made for this this console that was originally kind of being underwritten by Hasbro. And it was a control VHS vision. console, yeah. the Control Vision. Yeah, that's right. And so the idea would be that it would divide the tape into kind of into four segments essentially. So it would read half of the frames. It's difficult to describe it, but essentially it would halve the number of lines on the screen. So half of the lines were, were dedicated to one frame and the half of the lines were dedicated to another frame and it could interpolate between them so that 
you could choose between different cameras in in the game. So you could follow one person and then follow the other person. But of course, doing that meant that you had had half the resolution. So it would really kind of take a hit on the resolution and the frame rate as well, because it was a bit difficult to describe. But it's, mm. the idea kind of would have worked in practice. But when I spoke to Rob, he was saying it was so hard to kind of get it to actually work. And VHS was very unreliable. Uh, you know, it's not like working with something like a laser disc or a CD player. But then Night Trap did end up being released on the Sega CD years later. But yeah, it was fascinating to hear about the making of Night Trap. You know, Rob was saying uh, it was inspired by these these interactive plays that he watched, where you would follow. I think Punch Drunk do do these interactive theatre things now, but it was going on back in the eighties, and that was what inspired him to do this this game where you follow different people around different rooms and, and switch between cameras. Other things would carry on happening whilst you were kind of like looking somewhere else. So yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear about that. Well, one thing that uh, fascinated me and has always kind of captured my imagination is the uh, barcode battler. Mm. I remember <laughs> seeing adverts for that and thinking, you know, uh, nothing can make shopping with mum fun. And <laughs> <laughs> this this might do it. Uh, what's the kind of story behind the barcode battler? Yeah, I think if you've heard of the barcode battler, you, you probably remember it as like being this huge flop in the UK. Uh, it was released not too long after the Game Boy a couple of years afterwards, you know, and you might have seen it in the Argos catalogue and it was, wasn't was that much cheaper than it came from. I think it was about half the price maybe or just a bit over half the price. Um, the idea being that you would scan in barcodes. It came with a few cards with, with kind of barcodes on them and each of them had a, a picture of a warrior or a healing potion or things like that. But you could yeah. also grab the barcode from anything, like a packet of cornflakes and scan it in and just see what it did. And the idea would be to kind of try and find the most powerful barcodes and then you could battle the enemies that are kind of built into the game or you could battle your friends. Um, and all it did was the barcode would generate stats for attack, defense, special powers, that kind of stuff. It was pretty simplistic. You know, it was essentially, you had a screen with just numbers. It was, that, that was all it is. But it did come with some, some lovely artwork. And it was a massive flop over here. Um, but in Japan, it was huge. For a couple of years, it was massive. They, they released two machines, the, the Barco Battler and then the Barco Battler 2. And the Barco Battler 2 is actually the one that we got in the UK that's uh, the Barco Battler, just known as the Barco Battler over here. And then they released a couple more. There was Barco Battler 2CO, I think it was, and another couple, and then a football-based one. It went on for quite a while. And they even, it even got featured on like primetime TV. There was a, a game show where they converted the Barco Battler to run on a TV with a one of those handheld scanners and contestants would kind of run to this mock supermarket and grab things off the shelf and try and <laughs> scan them to try and get the highest score. And, you like know, a high-tech version of Supermarket Sweep. It was just <laughs> yeah. like that. It was just like that. So, yeah, the, the, it was it was big. It was, and you, do, uh... you can see how it kind of... It was a precursor to the Pokemon craze that happened a few years later. Right. You know, there were- yeah, I was I was going to say um, with Pokemon, but also I do remember some maybe a later version of Tamagotchi's had some kind of barcode integration as well. Yeah, I think the idea got recycled a few times. You know, and even especially when smartphones came along and people could use their their cameras to scan things. So there was a kind of mini revival of barcode games around that time. If you if you search for barcode games yeah, on your be, phone now, QR code, yes, QR code battle. That's it, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the, the idea is still 
you know, it keeps coming up every now and then. Well, one thing I love to see in the book was, uh, you know, when you got in, get into the 90s as well, and this is a memory that's still, you know, seared in my brain, when we had a, a family, we used to go every summer to Scarborough um, up in Yorkshire, um, and I remember going to an arcade and seeing Sega's Time Traveller for the first time. And you, you talk about that in the book as well, the fact that, you know, that was kind of, it was the first ever holographic game that I saw. But what was kind of the significance of that game then from from your research? Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of failed experiment, essentially. The time traveller, it was this enormous machine. If you've ever seen one in the flesh, imagine it's almost, the depth of it is almost as big as a pinball table. Like that's yeah. how deep it is. And it's it's similarly kind of wide. It's a giant thing. It's like a, an enormous kind of twin tub washing machine. Um, but the idea is that you, you peer down into it and it's got this kind of curved mirror underneath and a TV kind of at your feet that's kind of reflecting off this mirror. And there's live action characters and they've each got these kind of like coded reflections. And when it comes, when it's reflected off the screen, it looks like the figures are actually just floating on top of a piece of glass in front of you. It's a really remarkable effect. It works incredibly well, as long as you keep your head still. If you tilt your head to one side (laughs) or the other, the the illusion is immediately ruined. But if you kind of keep your head in one position and look, it looks amazing. Unfortunately, the gameplay is very simplistic. It's one of those kind of uh, QTE games where you just have to press in a certain direction or press a certain button at an exact time. And you, uh, the only way to kind of learn it is, is by repetition. You just play it again and again. And it was expensive because it was such an expensive machine to produce. It actually cost a few quid to play usually. So I don't think it was ever going to be a, a real long-term money spinner. And then, of course, Street Fighter 2 came out in the arcade and no one, no one cared about this weird, weird machine anymore. Um, but yeah. remarkable, weird thing. Um and it's interesting because it's one of those experiences that, you know, you can't really watch it on YouTube. You can't, you know, it doesn't have the same effect. You can't emulate it. It's one of those where you really have to see the original machine to get the effect exactly. of it, you know, to, to realise exactly. how impressive it was. There was a home version, so you, you can find a, a DVD version of this, but of course it, it doesn't really replicate the experience of these, seeing these little people floating around in, in front yeah. of you at all. <laughs> Well, you know, if we're talking about kind of impressive, you know, somewhat novelty experiences from that era, uh, obviously virtual reality is something that the yeah. industry, you know, it, to me, virtual reality is a bit like 3D TV. Something the, the industry churned out every maybe 10, 15 years to try and make it happen again. But obviously in the early 90s, I mean, that was again another arcade experience I remember using those virtuality machines that, you know, briefly popped up everywhere. Well, why do you think the, the virtuality machines didn't quite take off and that kind of, those early attempts at virtual reality struggled? I think the the simple answer is it was just too expensive. It was so expensive. I, I spoke to Robert Holmes, who was one of the founders of Virtuality uh, for the book. And, you know, he was saying it was costing them thousands and thousands of dollars to kind of buy the technology that was used in these machines. The, the Virtuality, the original ones, used this uh, magnetic tracking technology. Nowadays, Virtuality mostly uses accelerometers and things like that, but the same kind of things that you find in your mobile phone. But back then they used this system using magnetic tracking. And the only people that were making that kind of stuff were people who were producing stuff for the military. That was kind of how... And so they were having to go to these contractors that were used to working with the military and the actual machines themselves, the the kind of virtuality arcade machines. I mean, they cost anywhere from like $20,000 to... $35,000 $35,000 to produce. The exact figures are a bit vague because they, they negotiated prices per kind of vendor. So there was no kind of set price for these machines, but there were certainly tens of thousands of pounds. 
So of course they had to charge, you know, maybe five pounds a pop or something to run them. And then quite often they would have to have an attendant to help you get in and out. And suddenly (laughs) that's not very, that's not a very economical way of running an arcade if you're having to, you know, charge people five pounds a go and have someone constantly on hand to help people in and out of the the arcade. Full time number of staff for one machine. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. We had, um, we had a in Nottingham, uh, one of the only virtuality kind of arenas, which was uh, called Legend Quest. Oh yeah, I remember. Nobody went because it was very expensive, and it was all kind of fantasy themed and stuff. But um, yeah, I think it was one of those things that people tried for a bit and then just kind of gave mm-hmm. up on it. I think it's one of those things where it was just too far ahead of its time, though, because the the idea is sound and it caused a lot of excitement at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, but it was just the expensive. It was too expensive. Perhaps if they'd been able to to kind of accelerate it a bit more, if it was maybe a bit more popular at the time, there would have been a way to get costs down more quickly. And and if there'd been a home version that worked well, then we might have seen a more advancement in, in the VR field. We might be further ahead than we are today, but I still think, you know, virtual reality belongs in the arcade. We've seen quite a few virtual reality arcades pop up in the last few years that are doing pretty well. So yeah. this kind of... It feels like its natural home is somewhere where it's it's an entertainment. You know, maybe it's just one of those things. It was too far ahead of its time. Well, you know, if we're talking about things, it kind of got a bit of a, a second life in the arcade, and uh, this was quite interesting. I kind of heard about this before, but um, the, the book explained it well because I mean, the, the, obviously, the Amiga CD32 that was kind of Commodore's last ditch attempt at the Amiga uh, before they went bankrupt in 1994. But actually, that got a second life as a system called the Cubo. CD32. So what, what kind of happened yeah. there? Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by all this, this second life stuff. You know, what happens to machines that don't sell well? They don't just disappear. They, mm. they end up doing becoming something else. And, you know, we saw it with the Atari Jaguar, which ended up, the mould for that ended up being used as a piece of dental equipment. Yeah. I, I mean, that was quite <laughs> a famous story. And the, Q, the, the CD32, some of them ended up being used, sent to Canada and used as banking machines. And so that I do form of internet banking. Yeah. Um. But some of them ended up in Italy, and this company bought them and create, turned them into what they call the Cubo CD32. All the Commodore branding was removed, and they created these kind of like little drives that that kind of PCB boards, I should say, that plug into it, and then hooked it up into an arcade cabinet and made it into a quiz machine. So you see these things in bars, playing these kind of simple quiz games and a few games that were kind of like copied from games like Buster Move and, and stuff like that, and. Uh, there's a few kind of poker games and things, stuff like that. But then if you opened up the machine, just inside was a, a CD32. <laughs> Later on, they moved on to the PCs. I, think I, I spoke to one of the people who, who worked at the company and they said they basically started running out of CD32s. Uh, there was only a limited yeah. amount. Of course, Commodore weren't producing anymore. And as they burned out, they started replacing them with PCs. I'd love to see one working, <laughs> you know, because uh, it's got that jammer interface. So you're right, it is just... Uh, a CD32 on an arcade, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they were being particularly pushed with the games they were playing, but uh, yeah, kind of interesting to kind of see where where this this uh, this thing ended up. What happens when a big company like Commodore folds? You know, what happens to all that inventory? Where does it go? You know, at least they found some use for it, not just in a, in a skip or something. Yeah, so that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lewis, it's been a fascinating insight into the uh, the lesser, more obscure oddities from the world of video games. And obviously, if people have uh, enjoyed what we've been talking about for the last hour, there's loads more like this in the book as well. A really interesting read. How do people get hold of the book? Yeah, sure. Well, you can order it directly from the publishers, uh, Pen and Sword. So if you just search "curious video game machines," 
pen and sword, you should be able to find a direct link there. It's also on Amazon, uh, Waterstones, WH Smith, all of those things. So if you just search Curious Video Game Machines, you should be able to find it. And it's also available in the US as well, in the United States. That's via Casemate. And also you'll find it on US Amazon. Um, Great, well, I'll put these links in the show notes as well so people can if. click straight through. And uh, hopefully, like you said, you know, if, uh, you know, p- people should definitely go out and support this because, like you said, there's uh, hopefully enough for a second volume as well. So I do think it's important that these lesser-known tales are, are recorded for, for history. That's right, yeah, buy my book so I can do another one. That's it. <laughs> well, Lewis, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week. Thank you, it's been fun. 